Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the In the Eleven podcast. I am your host, Brendan Griffiths, and this is the show where we bring on those from the footballing world to show you what it takes to be in the Eleven at the highest possible level. And this week is the perfect embodiment of that, someone who is going to come on and give you some real great insight from someone who's experienced it at the highest level, at the top level, what it takes to really get there and to stay there. He is an analyst for Cardiff City Football Club, which for those of you who that name kind of rings a bell, it's a a club in the championship of England in the football pyramid. And as well, a couple years ago, they got promoted. So we talk about promotion stories. We talk about Premier League championship. We talk about players and coaches. and, And really, it's just packed with information of what it's like to be at the highest level and really how... An analyst can influence what happens on match day, what happens in trainings, and and there's so much in here that we dive into. So Josh Morris is in the 11 this week. As I mentioned, Cardiff City first team analyst, and it is an amazing episode. So I will not hold you any longer and kick it right over to there. All right, everyone, we are joined by Josh Morris of Cardiff City Football Club. He is an analyst for the first team, and we've been talking back and forth about getting this podcast episode on the books, and I'm so happy to finally finally record it and get to pick his brain a little bit about Cardiff City, about Premier League, about just football in general. So can't thank you enough, Josh, for being on today and looking forward to our chat. Yes, it's good to finally connect, Brendan. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure to be on this podcast. So I've been an avid listener for a good few months now. So yeah, it's great to connect and uh, great to be on here. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I appreciate that. It means a lot when I hear of of listeners as well. So let's kind of dive into it here for our listeners who might be a little bit unfamiliar about what your role sort of is in a club, you know. You work for Cardiff City Football Club and you're an analyst there. So Kind of walk me through what exactly does that entail? Yeah, well, I'm first team analyst for Cardiff City Football Club. We uh, play in the championship, which is the second tier of the English league. So the one above, well, one below the Premier League and then one above is the Premier League. Yeah, so I'm first team analyst. So what we do is we basically analyse the opposition, um, analyse us, analyse the players and we kind of aid the co- aid the coaching process in order for the coaches to become better with the team and to improve the players and just to prepare for games really you know if you want a short answer it's to prepare for games make sure the team do their homework essentially so yeah so there's there's two of us in the department myself and a guy called Jack Reducen who's the head analyst so we kind of have a really good partnership in analysing the opposition, which is most of our day-to-day work, really. We do a lot of post-match work as well, but it's mostly kind of the opposition because, you know, we, we start the week analysing the opposition and, you know, letting the coaches know how they play, what their style is, which I'm sure we'll go into in a, in a little bit later. And then um, after the game, we'll review it and then back on to the next one. Yeah, So it, it's, a, it's a really good snowballing effect of football, really, watching football all day, being outside with the players, watching training and learning from really elite coaches and managers as well. So, yeah, I really love it and I'm uh, excited to talk about it with you today. 
Yeah, and you just kind of hit it there at the end. So this is predominantly you and your team watching video, right? Watching previous matches, clipping, yeah. you know, clipping different segments that you want to make sure that you portray those messages to the coaching staff and to the players and stuff like that. That's usually kind of what your day-to-day -day looks like. Yeah, definitely. It's mostly video-based, but a lot of it is also kind of on paper or electronic these days we have ipads where we have like a written page report which i'll go through in a bit uh, analyzing the opposition in terms of what's their strengths what's their weaknesses and it's in video format and it's in paper format format as well so in possession at possession what do they do on set plays and we find it's really good for different types of learners as well so the coaches come in all different shapes and sizes and all different ages as well so some might respond well to watching video clips of the opposition others might to like to read about the opposition like an extensive tactical basically a, a 27 page dossier on the opposition with you know diagrams etc etc and real in-depth analysis on each individual player as well so it's really important we kind of cover all basis for the coaches uh, we give you know extensive tactical review in and out of possession in the set plays as well so i think it's really important to cover all bases with the coaches because everyone's a different learner and um, yeah i'm really happy with what we have at the moment um, at cardiff and the documents uh, we prepare for the opposition has been received very well so yeah i'm pretty pleased where we are at the moment with that good good how did you come into this role you know if someone out there is listening they might think, you know, there's so many roles in football, right? And obviously you can attest to this, you know, you can go on the coaching side, you can go on the analysis side and, and really everywhere in between. So how did you find your way and find a career in being an analyst and, and make it to the position that you're at now? Yeah, well, it was a really difficult one, really, because I never really knew much about analysis when I was kind of in high school and in college. And then obviously when I went to university, which is, you know, the equivalent, you'll have to excuse my uh, British kind of terminology because <laughs> I know we have some cultural differences here but yeah so when I talk about college it's kind of the school in between high school and university yes so but I was in college I wanted to be a coach um, I had my eyes set on a, in being a coach and I really I loved coaching I, I coached from a young age I think my first coaching kind of role when I was like 15 and I was coaching only like a players only a couple of years younger than me I had a real passion for it so I actually wanted to be a coach so I, I fell in love with football Oh, wow, since I was two years old, really. So oh, I knew, always knew in the back of my mind I wanted to be involved in football or soccer some, sometime. So I knew, I knew I wanted to do something, whether that was a referee or an actual coach. Obviously, a player would have been nice, but that went out the window years ago. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, right, what's the next best thing? So I was doing a bit of coaching, really fell in love with pairing sessions and putting the cones out and helping players and kind of making players reach their kind of potential you know it's not the best standard it was academy standard in the welsh premier league so but it's still kind of professional and i tried to be as professional as possible and i was really committed into that and then i went to university to study football coaching funny enough so it's a bit of a niche subject but yeah plastered with students a lot of students on the course and there's i think it's times by 10 now i think in my class there must have been about 30 students doing the actual football coaching and performance degree. But now there's probably about 600 absolutely wow. flooded with coaches. Yeah, it's incredible, really. And we kind of only found out about analysis when we were in the first year because uh, it was a performance analysis module. And I liked it. I always knew I was quite good at on, the, you know, on the laptop. I was quite tech savvy. 
So I always knew that I, you know, I liked watching football, loved watching, don't we all? I love watching football and kind of, you know, the Monday night football didn't really exist back then, but it was more like just analysing clips and kind of looking at different set pieces. I, I was always into that. So it's always something that's tickled my fancy, really. And then in the second year of university, we had opportunity to, opportunity to do a placement at Cardiff City Football Club at the academy, which is like an internship, you know, in America. And actually, we did that for half a season. It was like a special select few people just who were interested in analysis. And alongside that, I was studying at the University of South Wales. And actually, there's an opportunity to become their first team analyst. So I had never picked up a laptop and watched football before on it, but I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. So I applied on Twitter, the University of South Wales football first team, who are actually were back then one of the best in the UK. So it's very good standard, very professional standard. And I kind of met this person called Steve Savage, who's incredible. Savs, I love him to bits. And he's, he was the manager at the time. And then he basically got me on board and helped me out in my analysis journey. So if it wasn't for him, I would not be here working for Cardiff City, really. So I, I owe everything to him, really. But that was my kind of my journey, really, is that I learned on the job. Yeah. So, you know, I was one man, one camera, one laptop. And actually, the old assistant manager at Tottenham Hotspur, Jack Sacramento, he was actually the technical demonstrator at the time at my university. He actually taught me sports code for the first time. So I owe a lot to him as well, yeah. But when I first started, this was, wow, 2013, 14. The cameras had tape in it. You had to wait 45 minutes for it to capture. Wow, so much has changed. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but Jao actually, you know, I learned a lot from Jao in terms of you know, all the kind of technical bits on the laptop, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's where it really started. I kind of learned on the job, which I think done me a lot, a lot of world of good, really, because I wasn't stepping into an environment where I didn't jump straight to a kind of first team internship role. I kind of went down there right, you're out on the trenches, you've got to learn by mistakes. And trust me, I made a lot of mistakes. Mm. I made a lot of mistakes, but I didn't make them again. So I think that really steered me in good stead you know, to being a, an analyst, really, is that kind of learning on the job and gaining that experience at a very, very, very low level in terms of elite level. It's the university side. And actually, when I was working for them, we were actually won the cup and we were the best team, ranked best team in the UK. But it was that kind of, it gave me a taste for what it was like to work in professional football. And that is really why I'm here today is because I fell in love with analysis because of Steve Savage and his management style. He brought in two coaches and they were worked at the Cardiff Academy. That's how I kind of got the placement in Cardiff Academy as well. And yeah, snowballed from there, really. And then I, there was an opportunity to work for the first team in a kind of internship role. And on my second day as an intern, I got offered a full-time job, which was amazing, really. So I dropped that in my master's because I didn't even enroll in my master's, but I was supposed to go on a master's degree. Dropped that of that, and here I am today. So Never I started back. in 2015, and I was going to start if, yeah. So it's an incredible journey, really. I got offered a full-time job my second day. Um, I actually taught one of the first-team analysts something they didn't know on Sports Code. And I kind of that, obviously, I was in the right place at the right time, but you know there's no such thing as luck I think luck is when preparation meets opportunity so I definitely agree that I was in the right place at the right time and I kind of deserved that role because I was dropped in at the deep end definitely probably wasn't ready for it but that's that's how you learn and I think I've always been open to the challenge of right get me involved 
and I'll, I'll work it out later. Just get me in that job and I'll work out how to do it later. And I think that really what put me in good stead to be a first team analyst is that I made a lot of mistakes on the way, but I learned from them. And I wasn't just, I wasn't getting too ahead of myself. I was prepared to start at the bottom and work my way up, which I kind of done. So yeah, that's my kind of journey really. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned there that that's, that seems to be kind of the blueprint that maybe works for you and perhaps would work for someone else. You know, if, if a young person were to come say to you, hey, I want to be in your position, you know, a couple of years down the road, would the route for them be to, you know, try and get into first team football as quickly as possible? Or would it be, you know, to take a different route and really, like you said, learn on the job, make those mistakes, get hands on as quickly as possible, and then see if you can build, you know, a resume for yourself and try and find your way into a, you know, Premier League or Championship Club? Yeah, I would say there's a lot of people that are applying for or asking for experience at first team level. So, for example, if I was a young analyst now, I would be emailing Manchester United. Can I get involved with your first team? Can I be an internship? And I, what I would say to those people, you know, or even if, you know, our American friends, if you could ask New York City FC for an internship with the first team, I wouldn't necessarily say that's the most practical thing to do. Mm. What I would do is ask yourself, do you play for a university team? Do you play for a high school team or do you coach? a high school or university team, film their games. I don't know how much a camera is in America these days, but it's not that expensive. Quite a lot of uh, teams have VO cameras, which I'm sure you're aware of. Yep. You know, try and get some footage, try and watch some footage and analyze that for your own team. Because trust me, it's a lot easier when you're playing or your players are playing if you're the coach. And just start off, get a feel for it and start off, you know, at the shallow end and don't dive completely into the deep end because I think at the shallow end is where you learn to swim. You don't learn to swim on the deep end, do you? So I think that's the kind of, you've got to get the experience on the grass. You've got to get those hours on the grass, filming games, in the wind, in the rain, especially here in Wales, in the wind, in the rain, knowing what works, knowing what doesn't work, and just getting that relationship with the players, coaches as well. And sometimes you miss out on that first-team football if you go straight in because you're not going to be completely involved. So I think it's really important to kind of get that experience on the grass if you want to be a coach even as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the way you put it. I think it's probably similar to, you know, when I try and, and speak to players and sometimes players don't know this either, you know, that you got to learn to swim in the shallow end, right? You know, you got to learn yeah. to play in the lower levels, coach in the lower levels, be an analyst in the lower levels, and then hopefully those opportunities at those higher levels, you know, that deep end, as you put it, will come along the way. But, you know, now you're you're in the deep end and, and you're at a, an incredibly high level, you know, matches are coming thick and fast and, and there's pressure on a week to week basis, right? So, you know, talk to me a little bit about kind of a day in the life, right? Maybe we could go through, you know, what's a typical training day like, a match yeah. day, some things like that. Yeah, we'll, we'll take it from the top really is that what we try and do is build an extensive tactical analysis on the upcoming opponent. So we identify their strengths and weaknesses for a complete team profile in all aspects of the game, really. So let's say, for example, we're building up to play Swansea on Saturday. So a typical Monday would involve watching the games, analysing the games, doing a written page report. So we look at them in possession, out of possession. What's their transition? Do you know what I mean, what are they like in the counter-attack? Are they susceptible? We always try and work on a two or three games ahead. So we play Reading next Saturday. So we'll always, always already be looking at how Reading play, for example. So 
typically on the Monday, most of the work's done. So we'll go match day kind of minus five, which is which is a Monday because uh, we play on Saturdays. So, yeah, we kind of look at the strengths and weaknesses of the opposition. When can we exploit them? How do they, will they exploit us? What's their team style? What's their playing profile? You know, are they a possession-based team? Are they a long ball team? Not many teams are long ball anymore. You know, the average passes for the championships about 450 odd and I think you know a couple of years ago it was 300 so that's the kind of tactical trend that's happening now so we'll play Swansea on the weekend so we know they like to pass to the cows come home so that you keep lots of possession and play out from the back for example so everything is game plan orientated under this manager mm. so what we try and do is go how can we beat them how can we utilize our strengths against their weaknesses and how can we nullify our weaknesses against their strengths so how how can we do that so we look at obviously the video base you know how do they use goal kicks goalkeeper restarts do they throw it long do they throw it short is there any intricacies there is there any details in the kind of corners can we get at them in corners do we need to watch out for them who's their best player so all stuff that's kind of generic for analysis really and if there's any analysts listening oh yeah we know that we know that but i just you know, want to get my message across is that it's nothing, it's not majorly, majorly complicated. It's yeah. just really basic, basic stuff. And because at the end of the day, who you're presenting to, you're presenting to the players. Now, the players haven't got a clue how Swansea play. Some might watch on telly, some might not. So you've got to kind of tailor your analysis to the players. You know, it's all right having, a, you know, 500 page report on the opposition and 15 minute long video or 30, you know, 30 minute long video if the players don't really understand what's going on. So you've got to really tailor your opposition analysis and your, everything to the players because they're the people who are going to kick the ball across the line. And that is the main thing, isn't it? So yeah. I think it's really important to do, to, to remember that as a coach as well, is that, you know, you're not presenting to coaches, you're presenting to players. Some might not even watch football. Some might not have a clue what league, you know, okay, they know what league you're in, but some might not have a clue about these players. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Especially even though we played Liverpool a couple of weeks ago in the Cup. Some of those players, you've got, you know, you've got to remember, some of those players might not know who those players are. And you can't just assume. So you've got to cover all bases and do the basics right, really. I think that's a really important message to get across as well, is that you've got to do the basics right before you even start thinking about the 1%, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. But yeah, so it's a typical day. So we'll get to the training ground about eight o'clock in the morning as a staff. We'll have breakfast together. And then that's where the training day kind of gets planned then. So the coaches will go away with the sports scientists and they'll plan kind of, you know, what training will look like for the week and how many you know, meters per second, et cetera, they're going to run and whatever. And then they'll really tailor training into preparing for the opposition as well. So you kind of pyramid down really. So Monday, Tuesday sessions are a bit more generic. And then normally, typically on a week, you'll have a Wednesday off. So Wednesday would be rest and recovery day. And then Thursday, Friday would be kind of your real heavy tactical days then. So that's where you'll be doing your set pieces, your walkthroughs, your patterns of play, preparing for the opposition. So we'll typically have the opposition meeting on a Thursday. So two days before we'll play. And then sometimes we'll have a set piece meeting as well. But that varies from manager to manager. So some managers like one long meeting on the opposition. So, for example, Neil Warnock, like that. So you go in possession, out of possession, set pieces for, set pieces against, and just a, a real holistic overview on the opposition. Some managers will like an in-possession meeting, 
out of possession meeting and then a set play separately. So everyone's different, really. And you've kind of got to tailor your analysis to the manager because at the end of the day, they're your boss, they're the manager. It's their way or the highway. No yeah. matter how, how you think the game should be played, they're the one in charge. So you've got to kind of tailor yourself and you kind of got to take your ego out the door and just do whatever they say, really, because they're the manager, they're the most important person, the coaches as well. So, But luckily, we've got a great manager at the moment and the coaching staff are quality as well. So I think it really helps because we're all in it together. We're great communicators together as well. And I think there's there's no stone left unturned with uh, when we prepare for the opposition now. And it is really good. And it's more game plan based at the moment where other managers will, will be completely different. Yeah, but I really enjoy it at the moment. It's really good to, um, that's it, like a typical week for us, really. Yeah. Yeah. Can can we dive into that a little bit more about because, you know, you've now been at Cardiff for Premier League days, for championship days. And, you know, mm. I think we, we spoke about this. How many managers have you had in total in your in your tenure? Oh, wow. First team managers, I think it's one, two, three, four, five, maybe six. And as you mentioned there, it's going to differ with each management team that you oh. work with, what is required of you and asked of you and the way that everyone communicates with each other. So can you dive in a little bit to that and how that kind of affects your day-to-day -day or some of the meetings that you're having or what's asked of you? Yeah, definitely. So I think previously, a few years ago, we used to have an opposition scout. So they would come in and present on the opposition so we weren't really used that much. This was, you know, like maybe in 2015, 16. So we were just kind of the people in the corner with the laptops. We weren't really used and respected that much. Mm. But fast forward to now. Wow. We are. Well, we got an office now next to the manager's office and the coach's office. And we're very well respected. I think analysis has exploded in the last kind of five or six years, really. Certainly in the last three or four years. I think it's kind of come in line with you allowed ipads on the bench now you were allowed that maybe three years ago certainly when we were in the premier league i think that's is when really people are starting to take analysis seriously where we're not just that guy in the corner with the laptop um, anymore clipping games we're part of the coaching staff and i think that's quite prevalent in a lot of managerial teams now is that you'll find that especially in england or the english leagues where managers will take the analyst as well and it's definitely a, you know, something like a second coach or a third coach, you know, depending on how many people you've got uh, your exposure. So it is really important. And analyst life now is has changed completely where, they are, like I said, they were a person in the corner and now they're at the front of the meetings presenting quite a lot as well. So I know, and that kind of really took off when Neil Warnock was in charge. So Neil came in um, when we were doing you know, quite badly. We were in the relegation zone, I think, actually, in 2016. He came in and he changed everything, really. He's quite an old-fashioned manager. You know, those those listeners who will know him <laughs> will know all the clips on YouTube and whatnot. Yeah. But, yeah, what what a great manager. What a great man manager as well. Definitely not a coach. Definitely not, you know, the kind of X's and O's coach. Mm -hmm. He's definitely a manager. And um, I think that's what was great about him is that he delegated all the coaching to the coaching staff and he trusts the analysts as well so and it's interesting so let me explain the way he plays his idea is very similar to Marcelo Bielsa out of possession well man mark man mark all over the pitch so I think that was really important for him is that you know the analysts and the opposition so how are you supposed to man mark the opposition if you don't know what they play so I think the importance of the analyst skyrocketed when he came up 
he was really, really pivotal to what we do. He gave a lot of trust into us as well. But yeah, Neil Warnock was really good for us as well. So we, uh, Jack Reducing, who is the first team analyst, he would present to the to the players every Friday, strengths, weaknesses, in out possessions, set plays. And actually, the first year he did it, we got promoted, which was which was amazing, really. And yeah, so Neil Warnock really trusted everyone to kind of do their jobs, whether you're a physio or sports scientist, for example. It was really important. So he came in towards the end of a season got us safe and then that pre uh, the next season then we got promoted so I remember his one of his kind of first chats that season was that right I need to know how many points it takes to get promoted how many clean sheets how many wins what does my team need to do to get promoted so he came in and not many people will think that he would say this you know most people think he's uh, you know old-fashioned old school kind of a dinosaur absolutely not he is very very forward-thinking and he was incredible for us. So he said, yeah, well, how, how many wins does it take to get promoted? How many points? How many losses do you need? Where do you need to be at this stage of the season in order to get promoted? So we did a lot of research and we came back and said, to win the championship, on average, you need about 92 points. To make the playoffs, set 74 points, give or take. You need about 27 to 26 wins to get automatically promoted. Um, we can only afford about eight or nine losses. So that for us was kind of our blueprint for the season then. So that was kind of the outcome. So how do we get the process? So there's lots of extensive meetings on, right, how are we going to get do this really in terms of the game plans? How are we going to approach it tactically? And he's a very forward-thinking manager. So what we did is we man-marked the opposition all over the pitch, except for their other centre-backs. For example, if they were playing two, like you know, four four two, for example, one of their centre-backs would be spare because we'd already have plus one as a centre-back as well. And yeah, we actually got promoted, which was incredible. We kept the most clean sheets, I think, that season. And we identified that we needed, I think, about 20 clean sheets, uh, you know, on average, 19 for second place. And we actually got exactly that, which was funny enough. So yeah, it was really important that he kind of came in and he changed the way we kind of, and our analysts were respected as well. Because now we were the frontal, you know, we were, we were presenting the meetings. Well, Jack was, not me, but Jack was presenting the meetings, which was incredible. And everything was kind of on him because they wouldn't watch any games. They would put all their trust into a 25-year-old at the time analyst. like, And that, that really is special. That really is a special feeling to put all your trust into an analyst. And yeah, it worked. We, we got promoted, which is incredible, really. Yeah. Yeah, and you kind of have been mentioning this this evolution of analysis of games and the importance of statistical data and you know how it kind of drives performance, how it drives how you train, how it affects what you do on match day, right? And and you mentioned something earlier about how you know if an analyst was listening, they would say, "Oh, these are some of the simple things," but sometimes those are those simple things if each and every player and you know the manager is equipped with the knowledge of how is this team going to execute their throw-ins? How is this team going to execute their set pieces? You know, what are they going to do from every single corner kick? Those sometimes, I'm sure you can attest to this even more than me, actually are what becomes the difference in results at the highest level because, you know, everyone's talented at that level. You know, there's not going to be this huge disparity in in level, you know, between midfielders, right, in the championship. Yes, there's definitely best midfielders and, you know, best attackers and things of that nature, but sometimes it just comes down to those simple details and 
are your players equipped with that information and you know did they understand the message that you were trying to provide to them as well which I'm sure you've kind of realized now as well with this revolution of analysis of games yeah definitely it's um, kind of the small details which makes all the difference as well so for example when we're in the Premier League you have a lot more time between games to focus on the opposition um, so you can really break it down um, into the most granular level really in, in terms of the details so one thing I remember we did quite well is that when we played West Ham at home we beat them 4-2 I think it was around March time just towards the end of the season where we were fighting for our lives really for relegation um, so we got promoted in 2017-18 and then we were in the Premier League uh, when Man City won took Liverpool all the way and won the league at Brighton and um, yeah so we were playing West Ham and we noticed that their defenders keep a very high line on crosses so as soon as the opposition are in a crossing situation, they would squeeze up and they would leave a lot of the box, what we call the second six-yard box, this place in between the penalty spot and the six-yard box, almost like a second six-yard box if you copy and paste the six-yard box across. They leave that exposed. So we trained all week on kind of crossing that low, low zipped kind of cross into that second six-yard box in order to finish. How do we get there? Well, it's, it's all good kind of doing that, teaching crossing and kind of practicing crossing, zip crosses across the box. How do we get there? So we kind of broke it down. Okay, right, we need to get loads of crosses into the box, nice low ones, cutbacks, et cetera, et cetera, across the face of the box. How do we get there? How do we break them down then? So we realized that, you know, one of their players tucks in off the left because they could kind of play a lopsided shape. So how are we going to, so we're going to go up, back through, across to the wide areas, and that's how we're going to get in a crossing position. So I think that's how you kind of, those are real, real small details that not many people see in a game that you can mm. only see over a longitudinal games. So we watched the last six games, for example, um, and then you kind of pick up the trends, don't you? So where they conceding their goals, how are they conceding their goals, who their best players are, for example, who's their worst player, who, which centre-back do you prefer on the ball? Um, so taking back to my West Ham example, it was really important that day that we would get into a crossing position. And when we do, we see if they can squeeze up the box and if they do we'll cut it back and we'll score and actually we, we i think we scored at least one goal from that as well and it's really good seeing that kind of theory into practice and aid in the coaching process and you know influential match day really um, so that's just one example but obviously there's, there's loads of examples where we've kind of noticed um, on set plays where we can the spaces where the space isn't um you know we've scored lots of set plays uh, we actually scored the most goals i think in europe from set plays last season. Um, not many people were talking about that. I'm sure if it was Brentford, there'd be a movie about it. But <laughs> yeah, we, um, actually, when we got promoted, we scored the most goals from set plays as well uh, in the EFL. And, you know, it's a bit of a cheat because we've got 24 teams in our league. Um, so you're going to score more goals. But yeah, nonetheless, it was really important. I think that's what got us promoted, actually, is the goals from set plays. Um, it was really important that we kind of nail that down. So there's loads of examples where we kind of use blocks, use picks, you know, as, as Americans say quite well as well, um, mm -hmm. near post at the back post. And actually, I think Sean Morrison and Sol Bamboo, who are the centre-backs, were pretty much top scorer that season. So <laughs> it was, yeah, we scored a lot of goals from set pieces. And I think that's really one thing that an analyst can take pride in is because it's a closed situation. Yeah. And... You, you know, you're going to be underloaded, but you need to kind of create space. And 
that's when you can really take pride in your work because you know that set pieces, you know, like I said, it's a close situation, so you can actually gain an advantage there as well. One thing I love doing as well is um, working with the goalkeepers. And I think that can really make a difference in terms of getting them prepared for a game. So I'll like, you know, analyse the penalties, for example, and, you know, report back to the goalkeeper. So, for example, we have a meeting on a Friday before the game with the goalkeepers. Um, We decide where they're going to go on penalties. So we watch their last 10 to 20 penalties and see where they go, see if there's any patterns. Where do they place their foot? Where don't they place their foot? You know, where have they gone in the last three, four penalties? Is there any tells we can, you know, does he move his left hand up when he's putting it top corner, left or right? And I think I've learned that from the goalkeepers as well, really, is that their detail is incredible. And I've, I've worked with some great goalkeepers as well. Um, two really good ones at the moment. I've learned a lot from them as well. So, you know, we look at the penalties and we, we write it on their bottle, which way they're going to dive, left or right or the middle. Um, and I know it's only, you know, it's quite, I know it seems quite obvious, but it actually really makes a difference. And last yeah. season, we saved four penalties out of six, I think, conceded. And that's, you know, even two in the same game, actually, which is, yeah, that was one of the highlights of my career at the moment is that we saved two penalties in the same game. and We, we dive different ways, which is great as well. So as soon as the penalty, you know, gets awarded, the goalkeeper will look at his bottle, left or right, or do we, you know, play some mind tricks on him as well? And that's really important is that I think over the course of, since I've been doing it as well, you know, it's not down to me, it's completely not down to me, but the goalkeepers as well. But I like, it's kind of a good reward when we save more than we actually let in as well. So I'm actually disappointed when we concede a penalty, um, concede a goal to a penalty, because I actually think that we can save them as well. So yeah. we've actually got um, a goalkeeper called Alex Smithies, and he has about a 46 save percent ratio, which is probably one of the best in the world. Yeah, um, yeah. his save percentage is incredible. And I've learned so much from him. Um, we've got a goalkeeper called Dylan Phillips as well, who's, who's a very good penalty saver as well. And then, you know, over the years, we've had David Marshall, who has saved that actual penalty so that when they got qualified for Euro 2020 for Scotland, um, I learned a lot from him. And um, the current England goalkeeper coach, Martin Margeson as well. Mm. I think without him, I wouldn't know much about goalkeeping. I wouldn't. He was one person who inspired me um, to really look at goalkeeping in a, in a detailed way. And I think that's quite important to specialise as well. If you're a coach, if you're an analyst, um, don't try and do everything. Um, don't be the jack of all trades, as we say in Britain. You know, try and master an art, whether that be data analysis, whether that be tactical analysis, you know, set pieces, for example, um, or goalkeeping, for, you know, whatever. Try and kind of find your niche, what you really interests you and kind of pursue it as well. So for me, it, it's goalkeeping. I'm really interested in, you know, watching different goalkeepers and going, right, he could have done better there. He could have done better here. And really kind of breaking down the positional specifics of like the goalkeeping. And I think that really helps me prepare for games as well, is that we'll look at the attacking player traits. So for, when we played Liverpool in, in, in the FA Cup, we looked at, you know, all their attacking players, what they do, do they cut inside? Do they smash it from far? How do we know if they're going to smash it from far? What are their tells? And, you know, where do they shoot from mostly? Do they put it top corner? Do they like it zipped across the floor? And it is really good when it comes off and we make a good save. You kind of do pat yourself on the back, but it is a kind of good achievement going, right, we know the goalkeeper's done their homework there. And I think that kind of position, especially, I'm sure there'll be a few goalkeepers listening to this going, they're the most detailed 
players in the game, I think, because it's more of a specialist subject, really. Mm-hmm. And I think I haven't really met a goalkeeper yet who isn't one of the most detailed practitioners in that squad, really. So I think it's really good to aid the, the process with that as well. Yeah, but I love every minute of it. I really enjoy it. And preparing for games and kind of getting that influential match day badge when we actually, something pulls off is great, whether that be from a set piece, from open play, you know, whatever. Kind of nullifying their strengths and winning 1-0 off a set piece that we've kind of not designed because we help the coaches design, for example. We're not taking all the credit. Absolutely not. You know, it's a it's a big slice of the pie and we, we only take a little bit. But it's kind of seeing that on a match day and thinking, yeah, I had a little bit to do with that is a, is a great feeling to be fair. And I think that's why we do it. And that's why we love it so much is because when you actually see it on the pitch that you've been training for all week, then that's when it makes a difference. And that's when it really is good. So I really enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, it's fascinating for me to listen to. And it's, I'm sure fascinating for anyone else who is a, you know, a player out there or, any, it wants to be involved in football in any capacity, right? To understand the level of detail and attention that is taken into every single game. You know, you even look at that specific example of you talking about the goalkeepers and penalty saving. You know, it's the difference between just taking a guess and taking an educated guess when you are, you know, trying to save someone's penalty. And when that same level of detail is applied to all aspects of the game, you know, from attacking to defending and to set pieces, you really see how how much goes into just one single match, and, and it's fascinating. But I have to imagine for someone like yourself, you know, when you're watching a game, you see countless things that you're like, oh, I could bring that up, and, and oh, I could bring up that detail in this point, in this point. But, yeah. you know, then again, you don't want to sit in a meeting with all your players and give them 35 things to try and pay attention to in the match. So... You know, how does it, how does it kind of, how do we make it boiled down a little bit from going to, you know, watching the match and finding all the points that you see to then, okay, I need to make sure that the players can actually execute this. Yeah, I think it's really important that you say that. Um, I like to think it as the, the football analogy. Um, so, for example, if I throw you one ball, chances are you'll probably catch it. If I throw you two balls, you might be able to catch them both. If I throw you three balls and four balls, you've got no chance of catching any of them. Mm. So I think you can really kind of use that metaphor in your coaching and your analysing games as well. If we throw all the information at the player, they're not going to remember a thing. So you have to kind of, you know, whittle it down to two, three, four key points or key themes throughout the game in order to get your messages across. Otherwise, it just gets lost. And there's no point, you know, having an all singing, all dancing opposition rapport and a 35 minute video if the players aren't going to remember anything. Because at the end of the day, they're the players and you have to re- respect their knowledge of the game and they're not coaches. And I think a lot of coaches forget that is that, you know, they use different terminology and the players haven't got a clue what they're talking about. And I've seen that quite a lot in my time as well is that. You're coaching the players at the end of the day. You're not coaching coaches. And you have to kind of level it down on their level so they understand it. And even if that's really simple in terms of being on the grass and showing them then or showing them on the video or showing them on paper, showing them on the tactics board, everyone's a different learner. And I think that's the issue in schools, in the education system, is that we always assume that you're going to learn from one way. 
Whereas actually in the real world, and when you actually come to think about it, everyone learns differently. Some people are visual learners. Some people are, you know, listeners. Some people like to see other people do things. Some people like to do it themselves physically and actually, you know, kinetically learn. And I think that's really important as a coach and a manager is that you need to cater for everyone's needs. So I think, you know, coaching set plays on the grass, showing them what to do on on the video, in the meeting, showing them on a piece of paper when they when they put on the, in the set plays in the changing room. I think you cater for all those types of learners as well. Some players will like to know what to do with their jobs. Some players will like to see it on the opposition meetings, for example, and they'll all get access to that as well. So they can do that in their own time. So it's not just a classroom environment where this is how Swansea play. This is what you're going to do. And the players go, okay, okay. They're not robots. They're human beings at the end of the day. I think it's really important to remember that is that everyone's a different learner and you've got to cater for those different types of learners as well. And if I throw you five footballs, you're not going to catch any. But if I throw you one or two, they'll stick, hopefully. So I think that's, yeah. that's the kind of message I want to get across to everyone is that there's no point, you know, we watch a lot of games. We lot watch six to eight games for the opposition. I watch every single goal scored and conceded in the championship every week and categorise it. But, they, you know, we, we could give an a thousand page report on our position, but it's not going to make any difference because actually how much actually matters. And you have to, you know, you have to ask yourself, how are we going to make ourselves in a good position to win this game? You know, and I think the old saying is, is it going to make the boat go faster? Is that, is this information going to make us win the game? Is it going to help us? Not everything will, but you kind of have to ask yourself, is this important to affect the game on a Saturday or a Tuesday or whenever the game may be? Is the work I'm doing and the detail, the time I'm putting in going to affect performance? And I think that's what a lot of people have to ask yourself as a coach or an analyst is that, is this important for me, for my team to win? Because you could be watching 25 games, for example. And I think the funny example <laughs> I'm going to give you is that when we broke for lockdown in March 2020, we were supposed to play Leeds United. And obviously Leeds United have got this massive uh, you know, reputation of you know, watching a thousand games of the opposition. It's not a thousand. Let's say I think it's like the whole season anyway. And this was in March. So there was only eight games left. You know, and Bielsa's got all these people. He pays himself to watch the opposition. And they've done a report on every corner. Cardiff taken because they were our next opponents. Mm. And we beat them 2-0 and it was it was kind of funny to think that oh, i bet they've they, all they've done in lockdown is they haven't spent any time to relax bielsa has got them working on cardiff all the time and we beat them 2-0 and it's kind of funny that you know you don't have to get the best opposition analysis review you don't have to watch all their set pieces to gain insight and i think that's what's really important as well is that you know don't overcomplicate it as well keep it as simple as possible because at the end of the day you're presenting to the players and I think sometimes the power of knowledge is um, criminal for coaches as well as they assume that the players already know the information. And I think that is important to, to remember as well for, for coaches is that the players might not know what you know. You might have watched eight or nine games of the opposition, but I don't think the players will. Mm. So it's kind of gathering that information into bite-sized chunks is really important as well. Yeah. Let's take a break to talk about support for the In the 11 podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Their products are precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Manscaped Performance Package 
is the ultimate men's hygiene bundle. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code 11 at manscaped.com. Now, if my math is correct, that's about 8 million balls. Now, listen, here's the deal, gentlemen. The Performance Package 4.0 has arrived and it is a game changer. Now, I know we got a lot of ballers out here, right? We got a lot of coaches out here. A lot of you, I know in your sessions, in your games, you're constantly saying, you got to take care of the ball, but you're not taking care of your own. It's crazy. It's it's wild. And we got to change that here. And Manscaped's going to help you do that. So first off, we've got the Lawnmower 4.0, and it is the future of men's below-the-waist grooming. And that is because of their advanced skin-safe technology. The Lawnmower 4.0 is also waterproof. It has a 400K LED spotlight, so no more going blind in the bathroom, getting hair all over the floor, right? Pop in the shower, you've got the light as well, easy, and you're done. On to the next one. Now, same goes for that weed whacker, the Manscaped weed whacker for your ear and nose hair trimming necessities. You've got the proprietary skin safe technology, which is going to help reduce with nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate, sensitive areas. Now, last but not least, we can't forget about the Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and the Crop Reviver Ball Toner. A lot of you guys, I know you've got a routine with your recovery, right? You've got pre-game rituals, you've got post-game rituals, a recovery routine that you do after, right? Hopping in an ice bath, whatever it is, you have to add your below-the-waist care to that. You've got to take care of your balls, gentlemen. You don't want to be playing 90 minutes and then you come in and you're sweaty and disgusting and you're not taking care of yourself you got you got to do it and manscaped like i said is here to help you in that department and who knows maybe that special someone that's in your life coming to the game watching you play you know you play a good 90 minutes maybe you bag a goal i don't know you want to be ready you want to be prepared you don't want to be in a situation where you are left without manscaped now just because manscaped is hooking you up and they want to take care of you The Performance Package 4.0 has a couple of goodies thrown in there. They've got the Manscaped Boxer Briefs, and they threw in a little carry-on bag just to travel with all of your Manscaped products, whether you're going for an away game, right? It's a road trip, you're in a plane, whatever. Chuck all your Manscaped products in there. You don't have to think about it. You can forget about it and make sure that you're still taken care of. So it is time, gentlemen because your balls will thank you. It is time to take care of yourself. So go to manscaped.com and get 20% off with free shipping using the code 11. That's 20% off with free shipping using the code 11, E-L-E-V-E-N at manscaped.com. That is 20 whole percent off of your order. 20% off your order with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code 11, unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Yeah, you know, th- that variance in players and personalities that you have in a team that you're then trying to convey messages to and, and make sure that those messages stick. It's it's going to be, uh, I imagine, one of the most unique challenges that you have in your role, you know, because you look at maybe a club like Liverpool when Steven Gerrard was there. Like, obviously, him now, he's a manager in the top flight, so clearly he had an appetite for that side of the game as well, of analyzing opponents, of analyzing his own performances, and really understanding, you know, the terminology, it'd probably be a much different conversation than there's other players who look at football as kind of just what they do for their job. You know, they come in, they work, they go home, and they and they punch out from football, so to speak. And they're not 
watching every single match at the weekend and, and following everything that's going on in the league, which I think is sometimes surprising for people outside of the game to, to realize that, you know, some people do just look at it as this is what I do for a living and I'm not completely obsessed with it, you know, and that's okay too. And I have to imagine as well, there's also the combination of at the top flight, you have players from other countries and other cultures and other nationalities. And it's like, there's so many different elements that go into how can I get this message across to my team? And this team is compromised of a bunch of different learners, a bunch of different people from different cultures as well, different languages, you know, but at the end of the day, we have to make sure that those 11 players or, you know, however many subs then go on as well, that they have those messages, those one, two, three, you know, three key points that they have locked and loaded and ready to go in match day. Yeah, I think it's really important to simplify the messages as well. Um, one um, actual study that I, I, I picked up on quite a few months ago is the uh, the power of knowledge study where it, it was years ago and it was um, called the curse of knowledge um, it's when i think it was about 100 participants split up into one group a group b so 15 group a 15 group b and it was to test uh, the curse of knowledge so group a would be the tappers and group b would be the listeners so all group a had to do is tap a common music or tune to the music. So for example, if it was happy birthday, they would tap happy birthday to you, for example, I'm sure you've heard of that. And group B were the listeners. So they had to listen to what song was being tapped. Now it was interesting because before the actual tap went ahead, the group A were asked, how many do you think group B, the listeners, will get right? And they said 50%. How do you, you know, how can they not get an easy tune that I'm tapping? Group B, well, they had to listen and they actually got 2% right. And I think that's an amazing study is that from the group A, the, the tappers thought that group B would get, the listeners would get 50%. And to me, I know what happy birthday sounds like, but to you... I'm just banging the desk you yeah. and i think that's a good analogy to think is that you know coaches are the tappers and the players are the listeners and actually if i'm going come on you've got to know what half space means come on you've got to know what this terminology means and the players are like what in the world is half space you've yeah. got to explain it you've got to explain yourself you have to explain yourself there's so many you know gagan pressing the players are like what yeah for example, I know that's a bit extreme, but, you know, some of the terminology that some coaches use, they don't explain it to their players. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the terminology, but explain it to your players. You know, I've heard, you know, coaches use ridiculous terminology before, not just at Cardiff, but, you know, through throughout the years. And, you know, zone 14, for example, and the players are like, where? Yeah, what the hell is zone 14? <laughs> exactly. If you explain what zone 14 is, and, you know, zone 14 is the space outside the box where most goal uh, assists are from, and you need to utilise that the numbers 10 position, yeah, absolutely fine. We can use zone 14. Don't just blurt it out. Yeah. Don't just, don't just shout gimmicks, for example. And I think that's really important is that, you know, us tappers, as coaches, as analysts, don't just assume that the players know. You know, you could be catering... For example, we've got a player called Marlon Pack who is a student of the game, complete student of the game. 
he watches football completely all the time and he'll know kind of what you're talking about so he'll know kind of the the high-end terminology that we use but someone for example another player who doesn't really watch football who is just literally like you said just their job and they're not really bothered um which is fine as well do you know what I mean you know yeah some people might work in a call center they're not going to go and review their calls every night are they they're going to want to spend time with their family so and it's exactly the same if you're a builder and you're working on the building site you're not going to go you know analyze your performance on the building site for the night hey, you're going to spend it with your family so i think it's important to cater for those learners as well and share the different types of knowledge out and it's really important that you get the details right as well so while we can look at players who you know have had success whether it be in your time in the championship or your time in the premier league you know one thing we could maybe point to is those players who do become students of the game that can definitely be something that can help them rise to you know height the height of their their career the height of their game and become one of the best performing players in the team what are some things that you've seen along the way you know because as i just mentioned there you've been in the premier league before at the at the pinnacle right and you've been in the championship as well which is still one of the best leagues in the world so you've seen countless quality players come through your doors and and you know wear the cardiff city kit so can you give us a little insight into you know maybe what does a player look like that has success at that level yeah well it varies really but there's one common thing is they've worked hard for it nothing comes on a plate for a player you know like i said luck doesn't really exist luck is when preparation meets opportunity and i think that's really important is that as a player you never know when your chance is going to come mm. your one training session your one big save in a game your one goal your one tackle away from impressing the manager and changing your life forever trust me i've seen it so many times where a new manager's come in a youngster's come to train from the under 21s to the first team they've had a good training session they train with the first team all week they've had a good week they get a new contract they play on the weekend they score they're a hero and it is you are only literally one training session one goal one tackle away one save as a goalkeeper away from changing your career and if you're not ready then someone else is just going to steal it off you and i think you see that so many times with young kids is that you know, like young 18-year-olds is they're so close to that professional contract, but they're going to go out with their friends. And they're going to skip extras because they can't be bothered because they're going to go to the park or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But trust me, if you're not going to do it, someone else will. And I think that's really important is that, you know, you're one behavior away from changing your life forever completely. And I think at that level, everyone is, like you said, everyone makes the right decision in terms of on the pitch about 92% of the time give or take it's a bit lower in the championship in the premier league for example you know someone like chavi iniesta probably makes the right decision 95% of the time whereas a championship player probably about 89% of the time so there's not much difference i think what what's really important is that your ability will get you through the door but it's your attitude and it's your behaviors which will keep you in there. I think that's really important. I've heard that from um, the Barcelona way, the book is what they, you know, install the culture in that because everyone is going to be the same level as you at football. What's the difference? And it's going to be your attitudes, your behaviors. Are you turning up on time? Are you courteous? Do you say good morning to everyone? 
for example. Um, I think I use an example. Um, one of our U23 players, Tom Sang, he was on loan, you know, couldn't get a sniff on playing for the 21s all the time. He There was a couple of injuries and I think he travelled with the first team. He actually took the initiative to make teas and coffees for everyone on the bus, for the management team, for example. And that kind of stuck in the manager's head. And then he was cast out for a little bit, was the hardest worker in training. He'd always turn up first. He'd always do extras. He'd always watch his clips. And that attitude, he wasn't, you know, I'm sure he won't mind me saying this. He wasn't the best player. And he's certainly not, you know, the best player in the squad. But he's definitely kind. He's nice. He's humane. He says hello to everyone. He knows everyone's name. And that's kind of the behaviours that got him a good contract, for example. Obviously, your ability helps as well. But I think the way he turned and applied himself, he was always one of the best players in training, always give 100% for the team. He'd always turn up on time. By on time, I mean early. He'd always leave last. And that kind of pays dividends. And trust me, it does. It certainly plays dividends. And then not only, you know, he got a new contract six months later he was playing in one of our best wins you know in history when we beat Swansea at their place and you know he had the right attitude to improve and he had a growth mindset and a lot of players don't have that and I think that's what separates the good from the best and the best from the great is that your attitude and your mindset I think that's really important is that you know football is very physical but it's also played with your head as well I think as a player, if you listen to this and, you know, you're young up and coming and you're a bit lost, you know, just stay hungry because you never, never know what's what's around the corner. You never know when your next chance is coming. And if you're not ready, your teammate will be ready. Yeah. You've got to be so careful with that. You've got to stay hungry because you never know when you're eating on that proverbial table and you're full, you take your eyes off the game. I can guarantee there'll be hundreds of people with the same ability as you wanting to showcase their top attitudes and behaviours. It's not about ability on the pitch because at this level, it's exactly the same, pretty much, give or take. Players have the same amount of ability. It's how you apply yourself. Do you chase down that ball? Do you make those recovery runs? Are you top player in training or you just sack it off? Because you sack it off, trust me, you won't be here long. So I think that that's really important to remember for a message to play. Show elite behaviours. You know, For example, when he was at Man United, Cristiano Ronaldo, he stayed out every night. Well, not every night. After every session with the balls doing extras, doing extras. And we've got a player called Ruben Colwell, who's now a Welsh international. He watches everything, all the clips, you name it. He watches everything. He comes in on his day off to do extras and now it's paying dividends. And trust me, that doesn't come overnight. That's a continuous mentality to improve yourself. I think that's really important to remember as a player is that you never know when your next opportunity is. It could be around the corner, could be six months away, could be a year away. But if you're not ready, someone else will take it as well. Yeah, if we look at, you've laid out some great examples of some players who at your club have come in and not only done it through the work that they've put in on the pitch, off the pitch, but also just through their attitude and, and what they add to the culture of the club. You know, are they someone that can come in and fit in and, and be a positive influence on the club? That's usually some key indicators of you're going to have success at the club. Is there anything that we could maybe say to younger players listening as, maybe some cautionary tales of things to kind of stay away from doing or avoid doing when you come into a club. As I'm sure you've seen, you know, like we've mentioned, you've seen players who have come in and, and absolutely smashed it, and you've probably seen players who have come in and, you know, maybe not gotten along with the staff or anything or, you know, gotten along with the players. 
what are some things that we can maybe advise to players to make sure to avoid as they, you know, find an opportunity? Yeah, I definitely say doing the bare minimum will give you the bare minimum results. Mm. I think there's a lot of players that come through the door who just coast, you know, say, for, for example, if report time's at half past nine, they'll rock up at 9.29 and it gets noticed. And, you know, you're not ready for training. You know, you do the bare minimum. You don't watch your clips back. You don't improve yourself. You haven't got that growth mindset. I think that's really, really important to remember, as, you know, as players as well, is that, like I said, you're only one training session away from changing your life. And if you turn up late for it, that could be your opportunity gone. And, you know, you've, you've got to be kind. You've got to be part of a team as well. You know, you, you can't just think that you've made it just because you've got a new contract or you've just signed for Cardiff City, for example. Trust me, you haven't made it. You know, you're a U23 players for Cardiff. You've just signed from non-league. You think, you think, oh my God, this is amazing. I've made it. Nah, this is just step one. It literally is step one of the ladder. And you, you know, you can get high in your own supply. And I think that's important for coaches as well, is that don't get high in your own supply. Don't, what I mean by that is don't think you've made it just because you've had a bit of praise or you've won a few games or you've signed a new contract for a club if you're a player that's when you need to kick on because that could be when you're most vulnerable to decline. You know, once you get a little bit more money in the bank, you start getting a little bit more confident and, you know, you can turn up a little bit later. That's when your teammate next door is going to jump in your place. I think you've got to be really careful that you've got to have that growth mindset. And it's not about staying late every night after training or it's not staying late doing extras all the time. There's a time and place for it. Don't just think, you know, it's got to be sensible hard work. Don't just think because you're working the longest means you're working the hardest. You've got to work smart as well. Don't just think by kicking a bag of balls five nights a week, are you going to improve? Don't think that, you know, you've got to be sensible as well. You've, you've got to think about yourself. You know, are you in the gym? Are you first in the gym? Why is why is he doing his gym program? I need to be doing better, something better. Do you know what I mean? He's running 12 miles on the treadmill. Right, I'm going to run 13, for example. That attitude. You don't have to tie yourself out all the time but it's that kind of attitude and the elite behaviors which will get you will get you where you want to be and i think it's important as a player to do the basics right as well you know don't just think you know you're going to be the next messi for example try and be one of the most consistent players in your team whether that's under 10s under 12s under 14s whatever just try and be consistent and do the brilliant basics right i think there's no point you know, trying to get those marginal gains. Same for analysts, same for coaches. Don't try and concentrate on those 1% gains if you're not doing the other 99%. You know, your basic attitudes. Are you turning up on time? Are you organised? Are you a good communicator? Are you a good team player? Are you humane? Do you know everyone's name in the training ground, for example? Or, you know, what the coach, what, you know, do you know the coach's name, for example? It, it is crazy things like that, you know. Do you do your research on the team before? You know, are you friendly with your teammates? Are you a good team player? Are you kind? What's your, what's your organisation like? Are you a good communicator on the pitch? Do you praise or do you put them down? I think that's really important to remember is that don't try and do those 1% marginal gains, I think we call it over here, when you're not doing the other 99. I think you have to be really careful about that. It's a lot of people concentrate on getting the edge when really they're not actually doing the brilliant basics right. I think you've got to do the basics right. World-class basics, brilliance basics, whatever you want to call it, you've got to do that before you think about focusing on those elite marginal gains. 
And I think quite a lot of players um, at the kind of professional development age, where that be kind of 16, 17, 18, 19, try and focus on the 1% when they really need to focus on the other 99. Mm. You, and you mentioned this idea of the, the growth mindset. And, and would you kind of exemplify that as avoiding complacency, right? For, for players, as, as you mentioned, it seems like kind of what can be a killer of players as they're coming up is feeling like they've made it, right? Feeling like they've signed that first pre-professional or professional contract and thinking, okay, I can take my foot off the gas a little bit. And now I've hit, you know, I've hit that benchmark. So how important, you know, obviously you've stressed it here in the past about how important that growth mindset is, but what exactly does that mean to a player who's coming up and, and trying to master those basics? You know, how do they adopt this growth mindset? Maybe if it's something that they don't have. Okay, well, I'll give you a little example, a little story. Um, so I think Sir Alex Ferguson tells it to his Manchester United players, and it's a story about growth mindset. Um, so he would use this story. I don't know how true it is, but it's still a great story, no matter how you know. It doesn't matter. Don't let the truth guide you away from a good story. Yeah. So he said he was walking with his grandfather in Scotland, and he noticed a cathedral getting built. Um, and there was three builders... And they were building on this building site. And he asked his grandfather, what are those builders doing? And then one builder replied, I'm earning £10 an hour. The other builder, the second builder, replied saying, I'm just digging a hole. You know, I'm, I'm turning up on time, but I'm going to leave early. I'm just digging a hole and creating a, some sort of building for off the plans. The third builder said, I'm building the biggest cathedral in Central Europe, and I can't wait to show my grandkids this building when it's finished. And I think the story of, you know, the, the meaning of that story is, which builder are you? Are you that guy who's happy to come in and just kick a ball about without even thinking about the consequences of it? Or are you the second builder and that's coming in because you're conscious about how much money you're getting paid? Or alternatively, are you the third builder and you're the guy that's coming into this environment to build the greatest football team the world's ever seen or even build yourself as one of the best footballers you can be? It's not about being the world best. It's just about the being the best you can be in the world. And you're going to create a team that one day you're going to show your own children you contributed towards. And I think that's really important is that, that growth mindset. You know, are you there to pick up the wages? Are you there to kick a ball about? and just play football are you there to create something magical for yourself you know you don't have to be winning the premier league you could be winning personal goals as well or you could just be playing more it's it doesn't really matter what the goal is you just have to have that growth mindset and sometimes it is really important and it's not a straight road trust me straight roads do not make the best drivers you're always going to have obstacles as a player you're always going to have pushbacks and i think you know what doesn't what isn't what is good doesn't come easy mm. i think that's really important is that and sometimes you have to remember you know what's good for you doesn't necessarily mean it's easy as well so i think you have to be really important in that you have to think about who you are as a person and really get to focus grips on what you want as a player as well you know are you just going to come in and pick up money if you get paid, if you're lucky enough to get paid as a professional football or are you going to use it and really create that one thing that you're going to be special at? And really, because you've got one, you've got one chance. Those builders are there from nine till five and they're not going to leave early and they're not going to 
come in any later and you're a footballer, you know, you've got a two-year contract, your contract lasts two years, no matter if you're going to pick up your wages or not. So you might as well make the most of it because trust me, there might be another juicy one coming up if you're good enough and have that growth mindset. So it's really important is that if you feel like you're slipping down a little slippery slope, just remember that builder story. Which builder are you going to be today? You know, just ask yourself that every day. And I think there was a funny story where one of the teams in Manchester United in training, they scored and they went, Cathedral Builders won, money <laughs> money grabbers nil or something like that. And it, it's quite a funny one. I don't know how true the uh, the story is, but I know Sir Alex Ferguson definitely, definitely told it anyway. So that was great. So the mindset of the team that was able to get promoted for Cardiff City. The you know talk to me a little bit about some of the the personalities that you had in that club. Obviously it was, you know, a special group from top to bottom from staff yeah. all the way down to, you know, players and, and everyone in between. So talk to me a little bit about maybe, you know, who was involved in that group and also how special it was to achieve something like that. Yeah, well like I said before, we did the research on what it takes to get promoted. And we, you know, we did all that research and it was just, we, we were complete underdogs. We were, when we doing that research, we were focusing on sixth place. So in the top, in the championship, the top two teams get automatically promoted. And then the next four, so places four, um, three, four, five, six, get into the playoffs, which is home and away fixture. And then the winner of that goes to Wembley Stadium plays the final, gets promoted. I think that game on its own is worth about 180 million to the club, which is incredible. 180 million pounds. So probably about these days, about 200, $200 million. Yeah. Incredible. changing money. <laughs> incredible money. Yeah. And that it literally changes people's lives. It changes players' lives. It changes staff's lives. It means a lot. It means a lot. So we were always focusing on getting into those playoffs. We were like, right, let's make these playoffs. What does it take? And I think what Neil Warnock did was great. He like created a common goal. I think that's really important for the culture we had is that he, he created that common goal where people doing it differently to the norm. Do you know what I mean? He wanted to play long ball, up and out in football, man mark, not many passes, but he gave us a collective responsibility. And I always remember he'd, he'd sit us down in meetings and gone, no one fancies you today, lads, or we're the underdogs, for example. No one wants us to get promoted. And we definitely didn't have the best players. We certainly didn't have the best players. I think if you think, if you look at the top scorers in that league that year, I think none of our, I think one of our players, Callum Patterson, actually, who was a right back converted into a centre forward, was the top scorer for that season with 10 goals. Now, if you compare it to this season, Mitrovic, who plays for Fulham, is on 36 goals, I think. We got promoted and our top scorer scored 10 goals. But I think what that tells you is that Juno Hoylett scored nine, who just made it into the World Cup. Kenneth Zahor scored nine. Sean Morrison, the centre-back, scored seven. Joe Rao, centre-midfielder, scored seven. Nathaniel Mendes-Lang, a winger, scored six. And then other players scored four, three and three. So what does that screen to you? That screens teamwork to me, mm. definitely. And he created that common goal where we're all against everyone. No one fancies us today. No one wants to get promoted because we were the kind of villain team that no one wanted to get promoted because we didn't play sexy football. We man-marked all over the pitch, did a job on teams, and it worked. And the manager would make the players feel special. 
you'd allow them more time off for their family. And but when we were in, we were 100 percent our responsibility to work hard as well. He put trust in the players. He put trust in the staff. And we had a real clean sheet mentality where we put the team first. So, for example, if there was a decision which didn't affected you as an individual and it affected the t- you as an individual more. So, for example, if I dropped you, Brendan, if you were the right back playing and I dropped you for someone else, you had to accept that decision and make no bones about it that you chose the team, the team option what's best for the team over the individual. You know, if there's ever decision which be between what's right for you and what's right for the team, be under no illusion that we've got to choose the team option. I think that was important as well. He installed that into the players about you will choose a team option and you will help the team. So all the non-playing squad would come and watch the games as a collectiveness. We'd be in and about the changing room. It would be great. We had, had that kind of team mentality as well. And what he would do, which was good as well, is that, say, for example, you were playing against your old team, you'd start, you'd guaranteed start. So if you're an outfield player, you were play, used to play for QPR, Queen's Park Rangers, you'd start that game. Mm. Just as a kind of incentive to prove a point. I think he was such a good man manager doing that as well. So, we, like I said, we researched what it took to get promoted. We man-marked teams all over the pitch, um, did a job on teams, essentially. And when I say do a job on teams, I mean that we would nullify their strengths and we'd impose our strengths in the last 15 minutes of games of every half. And that's actually quite important because statistically, we scored a lot of goals in the final 15 minutes of games. Our goal difference in the, in the minute 31 to 45 in the first half, in the last 15 minutes of the first half, we scored 17 goals, conceded five, which was the best in the league. From 76 to 90 minutes, 90 plus, we scored 19 goals, most in the league, and we conceded 10. So I think that was really our game plan, is to nullify the opposition's strengths for 30 minutes and then impose our attacking play and our attacking flair. And like I said, we didn't have the best players in the league, so we had to be a collective. We had to nullify... The opposition. So, for example, I think when we played Aston Villa, I think we beat them 3-0. Sol Bamba, who's a centre-back, just man-marked Jack Grealish all over the pitch. He couldn't get a touch of the ball. And we beat him 3-0. And John Terry was playing for them, actually, at the time. And we frustrated them so much because we just frustrate teams. We absolutely, we dominate them all over the pitch. We'd win by one goal. So we won by a goal margin 13 times, which is the second best in the league. We won by a two-goal margin 11 times, which was the most in the league. Yeah. So that we only won by three or more goals, I think, three times, which is nothing, really. When you think the Wolves won by three or more goals eight times, and they, got, they, got, they won the league. They were first Wolves, and we came second, actually. Okay. And we just had that collective responsibility to nullify the opposition's strengths and to impose our strengths on them as well. Because we just thought, if we could because we haven't got the best players in the league. We certainly haven't got the best players in the league. So how can we be the best team? So, you know, we had to know our own strengths. And like I said, we signed a lot of free agents that year. So Sol Bamba was outcast by Leeds. We signed him. He kept the most clean sheets in the championship. Junior Hoyler, outcast by QPR. He was the best player of the season that season. He was incredible. 
we gave players a second chance. And I think that was really important as well. We had a good culture. We had a good togetherness. We had a relaxed atmosphere. We all felt together and we established that common goal as well. We all shared the same language, the same principles, the same responsibility as well. We scored the most goals from set pieces. We were really in it together. I think that was really important for us is that our game plan, like I said, in the last 15 minutes, just to nullify the strengths. And it wasn't all plain sailing. Um, I think we lost... I think we lost every game in December or it was pretty pretty much I think after or just before Christmas we lost four in a row and we were all we're in trouble here but actually after that we kind of sat down had a meeting you know what's going on what's going wrong we kind of ironed out a lot of differences we had there was a few you know tussles in the change room and you know words that were exchanged because we were so close to you know unbelievable status that we didn't want to let it slip and we had to be really careful and after that game against QPR we lost 2-1 we went on a I think it was a 13 game unbeaten streak actually which was incredible I think yeah it was um we didn't lose again so we we lost in the first of January to QPR um that year and we didn't lose again to the 6th of April because we were just we had that collective responsibility going right we will not lose a game. And actually, in that game we lost, we missed two penalties in the last minute. <laughs> so we should have won it, actually. But no, it was incredible just to see that, the, you know, everyone doubted us. No one wanted us to get promoted. No one was even talking about us to get promoted because we were the unfashionable team. And Neil Warnock really played on that, really played on that status of going, no, no one wants to get you promoted, lads. You know, I think you can do it. And I think... You know, we got. I think they always used to say in the press, "We've got a great bunch of lads. We've got a great bunch of lads," and that was really not a, a statement. But he was hoping that the players hear that and kind of got that togetherness as well. And I think that they'll always look back at that time as fondly at Cardiff because we were just a collective bunch of nasty players. You know, really did a job on teams, and it was it was really good. I think we had a massive commitment culture, which is really important. Um, I think a few. Um, studies have been done on like the different types of culture but we had something called a commitment culture which is really you know we we're always working towards that common goal and it was clear and concise whereas i think you know other teams for example have different types of cultures as well so some might adopt the star model so this is like the galacticos of real madrid where you buy the best players you get the best players in and try and pay all the money i think sometimes the issue is that everyone wants to be the head waiter at those types of teams but no one wants to wash the dishes so you've got all the stars at the front but no one actually wants to do the like you know the dog work for example and i think that's quite prevalent at psg at the moment yeah no, no one wants to defend yeah <laughs> and you know when it's good it goes incredibly good the star model but when it goes bad or oh, it goes really bad and it collapses as well so i think you know there's different types of culture i think there's an engineering culture as well which is almost like a Brucey Dortmund type, you know, you get the cutting edge players with clever plans, good tactics, for example. There's like an autocratic culture, which is one voice, one leader. So you get like a Roman Abramovich, for example, at Chelsea, where he is the dictator. And it's a very, very funny topic at the moment, but he's, <laughs> um, you know, you kind of, it's, it's architect by one, one person, one manager, his way or the highway. What I say goes, you do what I say because I'm the man. And obviously the opposite to that is a bureaucratic or democratic culture as well, which you get like a kind of 
voting powers for team members, for example, like Liverpool's transfer strategy is almost like a bureaucratic culture where they sign good players, but smart as well. You know, for example, Mo Salah, you know, but they have like a transfer committee culture as well. Obviously, those are the complete extremes. I think at Cardiff in that promotion season, we definitely had a commitment culture because we were always working towards that one goal. And it was, yeah, it was really good. It was really good to see that. And um, yeah, it was an incredible time. Really, it changed everyone's life forever, you know, including the players. You know, you had players there that didn't have a job six months before, and now they're on a Premier League contract. So yeah, it was really good. It was a really magical time. And sometimes you don't actually appreciate it until it, you know, it's gone. And I think you don't actually realise how well, much of a team and much of a commitment culture we had back then. And it was really good. I really enjoyed it. And um, something I'll forever be grateful for and look fondly back on. Yeah, because the more the more I learn about the you know the championship and the difference between them and the Premier League, I think getting promoted, and I'm sure you can speak to this too, is getting promoted to the Premier League is kind of one of the most difficult things to do oh, in yeah. football, you know, because... One, the amount of money that is at stake in those playoff games. The, the you've spoken to a little bit the grind that uh, a championship season is. It's the biggest league in the world in terms of number of teams, how many games you're playing, as well as you have. Yeah, you have cup pictures as well that you have to attend to. So it's it's really just a grind, and it sounds like your culture of commitment and not only that but the kind of commitment that you had in terms of you're going to grind out every single game and in those last waning moments of each half is where we're going to step up and we're going to shine it's like it seems just like the perfect recipe to actually equate in that final product of, of finding your way into the premier league yeah i think it's important that you mentioned before about those small winning details as well is that because we we're only sometimes one nil up in games or it was nil nil in the last few minutes it was those details that actually come to light. And I think it was what we did in the shadows, which really shone in the spotlight, is that all those work we did on set pieces, all the work we did on the opposition analysis come to light in those final few moments of the game where, you know, we did that counter-attack because we knew they were weak on the left side. Or, for example, we won the corner and we did a block for the back post and one of our centre-backs headed it on at the front post. And we kind of worked on that as well. I'm not saying that it's completely down to the analysts because players do 100% of the work. But it's definitely the case of what we did in the shadows really came into the spotlight then. And we really tried to nullify teams. And I think that was really important as well. So it's like you said, those small details, which might not win you a game every game, but when it does and it builds as a collective, it really snowballs into a championship winning, you know, or, or a promotion winning side, which is incredible, really. Um, you actually finish the season about the first week of May. Mm. Um, and there's always that chance you make in the playoffs. But the trouble is with the playoffs, it's the end of May. So the players have got to, you know, come in for another three weeks. And if you lose that playoff final, you're in the next season in about two and a half weeks. So that's the carrot is that do not make the playoffs and lose. Oh, my God. Yeah. It is disgusting. But it is a horrible, horrible league to get out of. I think... Other than the Europe top five leagues, I think it's one of the most watched in the world, I think, because it is so entertaining. You know, you've got massive players, massive managers, massive clubs in there. Even in League One, League Two, you've got big clubs as well. So the English system is incredible, but the championship is so hard to get out of. And, you know, like I said, you need like 90, 90 odd points to get promoted, which is, you know, you can only afford eight losses a season, which is, which is incredible when you think about it. Yeah. We actually did some research on the amount of goals scored 
Um, and it didn't really make a difference in terms of the first place and the sixth place in terms of goals scored, but goals conceded was the kind of the trend that we've seen is that every year on end, pretty much give or take, every team that got promoted has conceded less goals than the sixth place team. But goals scored, it's normally about the 70, 60, 69, 70 mark. But goals conceded, if you're getting promote, if promoted, you need to con- only concede about 41 goals but sixth place on average concede about 52 ish Mm. so you've got to be so careful that you know you've got to be defensively solid i think that is the kind of tactical trend in the championship is that it's how solid you are defensively as well which is really important yeah um and that's kind of you know your tactical work that goes in that as well which is which is really fun to uh to analyze as well yeah I mean, any anyone who's listening to this, I'm sure can can just hear like your passion and your and your drive for for studying kind of the game. And you are truly a student of the game. I think anyone who's listening can can see that and can hear that. And I'm curious where kind of that came from. You know, what obviously you've mentioned that you've loved the game from such an early age and you've mentioned kind of hinted here and there at some people who have maybe kind of helped you in your journey but really who has been you know who has helped you get to where you are today who has helped foster this passion for the game that you have and maybe you know your inspiration a little bit yeah i guess like from an early age my granddad actually was uh, chairman of the local football team um so from two years old i was always out on the pitch and um, kind yeah. of pretending <laughs> as a player and then it kind of, when he passed away, when I was well, 10, my mum kind of took over um, the football team I was running and she was kind of like the, the chairwoman for that league. So I think without them, I would not be where I am today. And I think my mum has been a, a real inspiration because her worth ethic is incredible. And I think, you know, the years of me watching her work two jobs, plus helping out with the football, for example, and the coaching and, the, you know, the organisation really and getting the, the, the kids' parents. To, without her, I would be nowhere near where I am today so I think I owe a lot to her as well from an early age and then as kind of I've grown up it's been Steve Savage absolutely um, University of South Wales football manager without him I wouldn't be where I am today as well because he was the kind of catalyst for everyone I owe so much to him and he's the most professional guy I've ever met and even though it's university football which isn't that big in the UK he made it big. And trust me, he was the kind of catalyst for the professionalism of football in the universities, I think. In, um, and he really kind of set the culture at the university as well. And then over the years, I've, I've worked with some great coaches. I've worked with um, James Robry, who is now the Newport County manager. He was really kind of the detail he puts into the, um, the training sessions and the analysis as well. He's the first team coach at Cardiff, he was. He was very good Um Jack Reducen, who works alongside me, my uh, my teammate in analysis, he's really his worth ethic and drive and kind of his level of attention to detail is an absolute joke as well. It's so good. Um, and I've really got inspired by him as well. Um, Mick McCarthy, who I'm sure you know, he really inspired me because he was the most humane, humility, kindness. He'd know everyone's name. If you were the analyst, the kit man, the cleaner, the CEO, whoever you were, He'd know your name. He'd know, you know, what you were doing on the weekend, for example. He was, you know, one of the most kindest guys you'll ever meet. And he was really inspiration because he came in when a time where the club was a bit doomy and gloomy. The old manager, Neil Harris, was great, but it kind of run its course a little bit. We lost so many games in a row and he kind of put smiles on faces again. So he was great as well. 
Um, Martin Marderson, like I said, he was great in terms of um, teaching me about the details, kept me on my toes of, you know, the analysis of the goalkeepers, for example. Um, Andy Dibble, who is now the goalkeeping coach, he kind of gets a lot of trust into me and trusts me with my opinion, which is, you know, I've never been a goalkeeper before professionally, but he kind of trusts me as well. And he used to play for Manchester City, Brigham Rangers, for example. So he's had a great career and that's great that he trusts me as well. Um, and then the current managing team, really, um, you know, Steve Morrison, Mark Hudson, Tom Ramasur, they've been great as well in terms of the detail they put in um, and really, really inspires us to, to work. And we, we love coming to work every day. I think that's the most important thing, um, you know, in any job, never mind. Yeah. Football, you want know, to you want to look forward to the day. No matter if you're a dentist, doctor, or, you know, or an analyst, you you know you want to look forward to work every day. I think that's really important as well. Is that I want to be inspired by myself as well. And you know, I think if, if you can't inspire yourself, who who else are you going to inspire? So I think that's really important as well. Is that you have to have that, like I said, growth mindset and that ability to be an open book and don't get ahead of yourself, don't get ahead of your station, really stay grounded because you never know who you meet, who you're going to learn from. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. always speak to people with respect and be kind I think that's really important as well and like I said focus on the 99% brilliant basics and you know don't worry about the 1% if you haven't got that yet I think that's really important yeah I think that's a perfect way perfect way to, to sum it up perfect way to encapsulate it um, man so much I learned about today so much I'm sure all the listeners are going to learn about today uh, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and, and for sharing a little bit of your wisdom with us this week. And uh, yeah, yeah, I thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Brandy. Yeah, it's a real honor to be on your podcast. And um, hopefully we can do a part two sometime soon if you get good reviews. So <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely. We'll have to uh, share more stories of the championship in Premier League days. And uh, I'm sure people are going are gonna to want to hear more. So yeah, that, yeah, that will be incoming. There's plenty more where that came from. So, yeah, definitely. All right. Awesome. That was the episode for this week. I want to thank Josh once again for being the 11 this week and sharing his insight and knowledge about what it's like to be at the highest level of the game. Really amazing episode. I want to thank all of you out there who are listening, uh, and I want to ask you a quick favor as well. Whatever platform you are listening on, if you can leave a rating and a review of the show, it would be much appreciated. Helps the show grow a little bit, especially if you made it this far. Hopefully you are a fan of the show. So I would ask you to please go ahead and do that as it really helps the show grow. Thank you so much, all of you out there listening, and I will catch you on the next one. Peace. Peace.